On my orders, coalition forces have begun striking selected targets of military importance to undermine Saddam Hussein's ability to wage war. These are opening stages of what will be a broad and concerted campaign. More than 35 I'm Brett Brandel, U.S. Army 1st Armored Division veteran, Iraq 03 to 04. I'm proud of my service. I'm proud of the people I served with. It's been difficult as we came back to realize, and if you've actually kept yourself in the know, to realize the circumstances. We sent so many men to be injured, and not just physically, but mentally. The peace of a troubled world and the hopes of an oppressed people now depend on you. That trust is well placed. This is Brett Brandel, U.S. Army veteran, father of four, husband to my wife, Ella. When I was about five years old, my dad moved us out to Woodstock, Illinois, out to the country to kind of give us that country upbringing. I went to the local schools for elementary school and middle school, and then went to a Woodstock High School, enlisted in the Army right after I got out. Graduated in May, and I think I shipped out in July. The reason I joined the military, I think, you know, the, my family had a long history in the military. Someone served in almost every conflict since World War One. Specifically, my grandfather was a World War II veteran and a, a highly decorated veteran. He was uh, won the Silver Star and the Purple Heart with Oak Leaf Clusters. So growing up with his stories and that kind of heritage motivated me to go into the service. My father was also in the service. Like I said, it's been in the family tradition. So I also knew after I, my service time, I wanted to become a firefighter, and I knew that would help me in the selection process. I signed up in July of 2001. I spent a month in reception. If anybody knows when they come to basic training, you're supposed to sit in reception for maybe a week before you get assigned to your uh, basic training company. And we sat there for a month. They put us in like this demothballed old barracks on Fort Knox and had 200 guys running around with one roll of toilet paper between all of them. So it was freaking chaos from the get-go. So uh, finally, when we got assigned to our company, it was late August, I think is the first or second week, you start to qualify on your rifle. So that's when 9-11 happened. Is actually when I was, the day I was qualifying on my rifle. I kind of knew something was up because we're sitting on this rifle range and you got 100 guys, probably 80% have never fired a weapon in their life. You're talking about some, I would think as far as drill sergeants go, this would probably be one of the most nerve-wracking times because you got very green soldiers and you're already putting rifles in their hands. I noticed like on the whole firing line, there was like two drill sergeants for like 50 guys. I remember looking at a guy and go, something's up, dude. We're all the drill sergeants. And I walked around the back of the pavilion and I kind of stuck my head around and they were all sitting in Humvees listening to radios. And they had like these real somber looks on their faces. Now, vast majority of these guys, because I was, my MOS was 19 kilo. I was an Abrams, M1 Abrams crewman. So, you know, tank guy. So all these, almost all my drill sergeants were Desert Storm vets. These guys were actual combat veterans, and I, I saw the looks on their faces. I'm like, man, something's really going down. And then they called us. The company commander showed up and informed us that, you know, 9 a.m. this morning, two planes struck the World Trade Centers. And as of now, 
I think that I think at that time they had collapsed too. He was like, if anybody has family and from New York, we will allow you guys phone privileges tonight because at this point we're in the red phase. So you're like, you don't get shit. <laughs> I'll be damned if every guy had a relative in New York, you know. So I graduated on December 7th, which is anniversary of Pearl Harbor. So that was kind of a, you know, when they did the presentation, they added a whole thing on the big screen for that. But at this point, Afghanistan had already kicked off, had been going. And, and basically what they were telling us was, you guys aren't going to go anywhere. They're not bringing tanks to Afghanistan. Obviously, they... They watched how the Russians got decimated during the Afghan war. Tanks were sitting ducks. It's a t very mountainous region. I mean, I mean, very few roads, easy for ambushes, that kind of stuff. They're like, yeah, we're not sending you guys there. So we were kind of like, well, here's the war when I'm in, and I'm, I'm not even going to go. So you got to pick to get if you wanted to go stateside. Or at this time, 2001, we still had armor divisions in Germany. So I chose the... I wanted to go to Europe, so I chose Germany. I fly out, arrive in uh, Rammstein, and I'm good. I'm getting stationed in Friedberg, Germany, the same post where Elvis was stationed. But it was like tragic because I show up when I when I land. I'm in Germany. The first time I got to a phone, I was able to call home and tell my family that I had, you know, I had arrived. They told me that my cousin had been murdered. I hit the ground there, and I'm like, I'm already like, I'm, it's a whole stressful environment already because you're a you're in the military again you're out of basic training which when you go into your real unit it's like basic training is way different even the craziest guys can kind of be controlled there because you just got you locked down now you're basically you're in your unit now and it's almost like a job you know you got it's like a nine to five during the week and then you can do whatever the hell you want so it's almost like college you're already thinking like man who am i gonna meet you know i didn't have anyone from my basic unit actually i think going to my post with me. There was some guys that were going to Germany, but not. I don't think any of them were getting stationed with me in my unit. So I was like, I mean, I'm going to be all by myself. And the first time I called home, I'm like, yeah, let me talk to somebody. And <laughs> that's they tell me that my cousin had, had been killed. I think that's a big thing with any veteran when they return is it's like time stands still. When you leave, you've gone across the world. You've, li you know, you've lived in a foreign country, especially if you're in a place where at a time there was actual real hostilities going on. When you experience all these things, you survive all these things, you come back and your buddies are, you know, at the same house, drinking the same shit, talking to the same people, complaining about the same crap. And you've had this unbelievable life-changing experience on the most hardcore level as far as, you know, the things you were doing. There's very few professions that come anything close to the intensity and, and just... The constant threat of living on an impending doom. I think that's what I tell people the most. It's not during the actual direct actions where you're you're feeling the most nerves. I mean, it's almost you go into a robotics trance during these events and you're really relying on your training. It's when you come back and, and, and you have time to think about and try to process what just happened and what possibly could happen is the next operation you go. I mean, that's when you're really living with that never-ending thought of, I could be killed at any moment right now through a random mortar shell to a bullet sniper, whatever. I deployed to Iraq in May of 2003. So I think the war had kicked off about two months prior to that. So we were the first 
large unit that was coming into the country to replace Third ID that had made the push up from uh, Kuwait. I think we got there about two weeks after they pulled the big Saddam statue down on TV. So everything's still fresh. All that crap's everywhere. Blown up vehicles are everywhere. We drove from Kuwait up to Baghdad, which I think it took us 36 hours or something. I don't know. It was awful. We arrive into Baghdad at night, and there's like a thunderstorm, and it's and it's pouring rain. And this is a place we realized you're not going to see rain basically for the rest of the year. And here we are the first day, and we're just getting drenched. It was crazy. And then we pull up to the meeting place where the unit was going to get together and then divide up to go to all to their selected fobs that they were, they were going to go to and replace whatever guys were there. If you look it up on TV, it's like called the Cross Swords Monument. And it's basically a parade field that Saddam would always do those military parades on. And at either end, there's two gigantic hands coming out of the ground holding huge swords that go up into the sky, you know. And I mean, they're gigantic, and they're like actual molds of Saddam's hands. These hands are like the size of school buses. They're huge. There's big, huge cargo nets hanging off the hilt of each sword that's just filled with thousands and thousands of helmets from dead Iranian soldiers taken from the Iran-Iraq war that was in the 80s. So when the, the vehicles would come, they would, quote, roll over the heads of their enemies is how they kind of looked at it. So I remember popping out of my hatch, and the first thing I see is these gigantic swords looming above me and then lightning exploding behind it, like lightning in them up. It was like a, like Count Dracula shit, dude. <laughs> like, where am I? It's surrounded by a man-made lake on three sides, and it's a large underground complex, which is the reason why they picked it, because it was almost impervious to indirect fire. Huge concrete slabs with carports under. You could park in the majority of our vehicles underground, basically. So they really like this thing. Very ornate. Like the entire driveway of this thing, which was probably close to a half a mile, was all polished granite. I mean, it was extremely expensive when Saddam had this thing made. My primary job was a tank guy, but I ended up getting assigned to a headquarters company primarily with the S2 division, which was the military intelligence guys, because they would have these armored vehicles that they're, you know, supposed to carry them in and they would need a tank crewman to drive the thing for them. Some tankers will get assigned off to different areas outside of tank brigades and tank battalions. I had a very unique experience in Iraq because I was basically a combat guy in a traditional non-combat unit I was allowed to volunteer myself out to all these different units that needed people. If the psychological operations guys needed security details, I'd go with them. If anybody needed convoy security, I went with them. Anybody, you know, when the scouts would go out and they had a seat open, they wanted an extra gun, I'd go with the scouts. So it was like I was just jumping all over the place. The brigade commander, which was a Fulbright colonel, gunner, I don't know what happened to him, something happened to him, and his slot opened. So anytime the brigade commander would leave, I would gun for him. So I went to all of these Saddam's palaces. I went to all these different task force operations that my unit wasn't a part of, but I ended up becoming part of just because of the circumstances I was in. The most trying moments you have, you can't really narrow it down to, you know, it's hard to say because just living there is a trying moment. You're always on edge. People don't realize to live your life 24-7 for you know, almost a year and a half on a, a continuous heightened sense of awareness, there is no relaxing. Even when you're quote unquote relaxed, you're not relaxed. It's almost impossible to be in, in an environment like that and be able to be ready to spring out of your chair at a moment's notice. That kind of 
enduring stress on you, the fatigue that it causes, and on top of then all the operations you're running and the climate that you're in. I mean, you're in a place where it's 110 degrees for five, six months straight. When the weather hit double digits, we were like, it's only 90 today. Well, you're in full battle rattle. You got all your gear on. You're in long sleeve shirts and pants. And when I was there, the body armor we had was junk. I think they discontinued all of it crap because it fucked up so many guys' necks and backs. So you just got that thing roasting. Your weapon's so hot, you can't, you got to wear gloves because you'll burn your hand from it just cooking in the sun all day. And on top of that, you're drinking water. You know, at this point, especially in the beginning, we didn't have any refrigeration. So you're drinking water that's bottles of water that have been sitting in the sun all day. So it's like drinking bath water, like hot bath water. I mean, that's supposed to refresh you. I mean, like, <laughs> it's like, it's like, an, and then you're eating everything out of a can or an MRE. Our beginning rations were two liters of water and an MRE a day when we first got there till they really had all the, the supply lines secured and all that shit. That's what you were eating. Humans have a, a funny way of being able to cope in real shit situations. I think it's built into us because the prosperity we live in now is is an anomaly in the human history. And I think the human condition kind of thrives under pressure like that. So like guys just were, especially young guys like me that had no families, no kids or anything like that. It was easier for me to kind of keep my edge, I guess, a little bit where the guys that had families and all that kind of shit had a lot more to worry about, a lot more stress on them. Well, obviously military marriages are uh, not always a very successful thing. And then you got kids involved and, you know, my one sergeant, who was killed, had three kids that were young when he passed away. You're trying to deal with the normal stress of it, and then things like that are happening while you're there, and you know you're not leaving anytime soon, so it's probably going to happen again to someone else you know. So the way you go about it is just, you just stick to the mission, I guess. I mean, you try to get in routines. It's probably like jail. <laughs> you know, they talk about it like, don't mess up their routines. They'll go crazy. It's kind of the same. Almost every contact I was in was some kind of ambush or IED or something like that. It was very rare over the course of deployments to do continuous offensive operations. A lot of what we were doing was maintaining what we had. We were in Adamia in Baghdad, which if anybody knows that Adamia was one of the strongest supporting parts of the city for Saddam. And that was actually the last place, that part of the city was the last place he made a public appearance before he went underground. So Adamia, where the, where the heavy bath party people lived, when you moved into some of these neighborhoods, if the houses got nicer, it got more dangerous. Because you knew these were the, the houses, these are the people that lost it all when Saddam got kicked out. You know, the slums were always the slums, but these nice places, this is where the hardcore guys that were most pissed off were living. We're walking down a street that had walls, you know, like six-foot walls on either side. A lot of these places, anyone who's been in the city, the Iraqis build a wall around all their property. And on the top, a lot of the times, they'll break glass. They'll put, like, wet cement. They'll break glass. They'll put broken glass on the top of so you could guys try to climb over. You shred your hands. It's like a little security thing they do. But we're walking down probably the only lit street in Baghdad. We got six-foot walls on your side. And we're, the reason we were going there, we're stopping here, was... My buddy Dave Markline, he wanted to see, he actually had like about a week or two prior to that had been struck with an IED in that exact road and the and the and his passenger was the command sergeant major of the brigade, was killed. 
Command Sergeant Major Cook. He didn't have much memory of what had happened. Like he said, this guy had suffered a traumatic brain injury and he was already back on the street on patrols. This is the kind of dude this guy is. So he wanted to see actually where it happened. So it was kind of like on our route. So that, you know, our lieutenant was like, all right, we'll check it out. We saw as we're walking, we see, a cra- you know, the crater where it was. We're like, holy shit. Realizing that how lucky he was, you know, that, that he made it out of that one. And then as soon as we see it, we're like, all right, let's move out. We move about not even 100 yards down from that. And out of the corner of my eye, I just see a fireball. Literally just see a fireball and then a blast goes off. And what we can assume is because we had came down that street earlier, that had been put into the sidewalk. That's what they would do a lot of times to disguise these things. They'd actually embed them in the curbs or try to hide them. They blew this IED and then... We had guys coming on the rooftops and started just pouring machine gun fire on both sides of us. They got us like in a crossfire. We can't go left or right because the walls are holding us in. And all we had for cover really was these real skinny light poles. So all of us, I think there's like nine of us, start cutting loose and, and engaging all these guys that are firing on us. About, I don't know, probably a couple blocks down the street where was our gun truck. So what they do is like the, our trucks would drop us off and do these foot patrols and we'd go through these areas and then they would meet us at a rendezvous point. We'd load up and then we'd go back to the base. So they were sitting down in an area waiting for us and they heard this shit kick off. Dave's got the radio and Dave's calling for gun truck support. And we have this lieutenant just completely freaked out and did not want to come get us. My roommate from Germany who was there with us, Gabe Garcia, is screaming at the lieutenant, sir, they're calling for, they need help, they need help. And he's like, no, we're staying here. Like, he freaked out. The guy was not just petrified. He was not going to leave. You hear this gun battle coming down the street. Gabe kicks the driver and says, F this guy, leave him, let's go. And he takes off in the second, because there was three gun trucks, the second gun truck sees Gabe leave, so they say, screw this. They follow him. Now he's alone freaks out and tells the driver to follow the trucks. At this point, we've started to tactically retreat out of this area because we're basically in a kill zone and we needed to get back to one of these side streets. So we're kind of like leapfrogging each other. Guys are opening fire. As the other guys move, they set, call you out. So you run and they open fire. You know, you're just kind of leaping each other like this, keeping suppression fire going. So we duck into this side street. And just then I see Gabe come zipping down right in the middle of where this whole battle was happening. And he flies by us. I see him up in a gun turret. And we scream, Gabe! You know, as he runs by, like, he sees us. And this kid he had driving was, like, his first day out, I think, on the street. And this kid, I watch him power slide a freaking Humvee and then come racing over and drill the median and just fucking, like, (laughs) off-road jump the median with Gabe hanging on in the gun turret pulls up and he just yells, get in. We've been here now 12 months. So we're coming to the end. They had moved us out of the Martyrs Monument and they moved us onto Baghdad International Airport. Basically, they're moving you there because they're preparing to get rid of you. So we went from, when we first got there, like effing animals. You had no showers, you had no toilets. I mean, you were burning. You had to have a detail every morning to burn shit, your own shit. You're washing your clothes in a bucket of water. You're showering with like an old five-gallon big water can. You dump it on your head. You soap up. You dump it on your head, and that's your shower. I went 17 days without a shower one time. We had moved inside. I think after eight months, they finally fixed an air conditioner, so you had some air conditioning in this building. 
we get moved to the Baghdad International Airport, and they're giving every they're giving every guy, every two guys, a trail, like an air conditioned trailer to sleep in with a bed, which was like a bed, dude. Like you've been sleeping on these army cots, foam pad that you bought for it. Now you're in a bed, and they're like, "Okay, we're getting ready." So when you're doing this stuff, you're going out with. You call it right seat riding. You're going out with the unit that's going to replace you, and you're going into your area of operation. You're kind of showing them the ropes. You know, over here, watch out over here. This guy's a dirtbag. Don't talk, you know, don't trust him. They hit us here before. So, you know, you're giving everything. You're basically telling them everything. They were asking, what is the main thing guys should concentrate on? I'm like, look, I'm not a medic, and I basically have fell into this role here because we don't even have one. Because so, I used to carry a big aid pack on me, and I used to hang with the the brigade surgeon used to teach me how to do all this stuff, IVs and all this combat lifesaver stuff, but well beyond what was taught in that class. And I was actually using it almost every day. I think there was, I had at least 40 casualties. I think I treated everything from IED wounds to gunshots to kid cut his finger. You know, he'd come up to me on the street, you bandage it up, whatever. So I tell him, man, make, make sure the guys know that stuff because they'll actually come into play. So they're like, all right, great. You know, gave me a coin, all this, to get these coins in the army. They, they fly back, and we're all getting, I think we're 12 days out. We're packing up Connexes, which were like these big metal shipping containers you see on ships. Everything's packed up. All the tanks and vehicles were put on trucks and sent down to the port. You're 12 days from flying. Then all of a sudden, we get this hit that Karbala and Najaf get overthrown by the Mahdi militia, which were these one of these clerics that were like following them around, and they were getting all hyped up. And there was thousands of them, you know, they were all armed. And it was right in Sadr City, which was right by our FOB. So it was, it was our area. These two cities get overrun. All their police are killed. Whatever coalition forces were there are now neutralized. In Karbala, there was a Polish detachment there, and they got completely pushed into their, their FOB, and they weren't going anywhere. They were doing no off. They, I don't even think they were allowed to do any offensive operations. So they were just basically trapped in their FOB. So they weren't going to obviously send these brand new units that came in. Our unit was probably the most battle-hardened that was in that area. So they divided us up and said, you you know, this unit or this part of the brigade is going to Karbala to retake Karbala, and this part's going into Jaff. So with 12 days out, they ended up extended us another three months. And down in Karbala, this was some of the worst fighting that everyone had seen since the beginning. Because a lot of the times we were just running around dodging the IEDs and doing the occasional get pockets of resistance and you'd be able to get rid of it. But this was like a full-blown insurgency now that we're wearing uniforms and had set up OPs and all this kind of shit in these cities. So, like, it was it was a big deal when we went down there. That 90-day extension ended when I got back to Germany. I only had two weeks left on my contract when I could get out. It was crazy because you redeployed... And now within two weeks, I was back in civilian life again. And I mean, that, that was a major shock to the system. I still had uniforms that still had blood stains on it that were with me. And I'm looking at them, you know, crazy. So when I came home, I always knew what my plan was going to be was to start testing for the fire department. By the grace of God, luckily, I tested for my local department. I was able to get a part-time gig there. They were sending me through all my schools, my firefighter too, my EMT, my paramedic to get these, you know, other licenses. And I'm working part-time. And obviously I was having a lot of trouble kind of readjusting. It was still so fresh. I mean, realizing back then in 2004 that we would still be there for over a decade longer 
every single day, all I ever saw was stuff on Iraq. You end up just sitting there watching this shit over and over again, wondering if you've made the right decision, wondering because some of your friends are going to make a career. Some of them still had time and they were probably going to deploy again. And now you knew they weren't going to deploy with you. You weren't going to be there to watch their back. They weren't there to watch your back. And it's like, this is the hardest thing I think for veterans when they come back is knowing that even with friends they've known their whole lives, when you hook up with them again and you're kind of just sitting there like at a party or something and you're just looking at everybody and, and listening to everybody bitch and moan about trivial shit, and you're sitting there and all you're telling yourself is there's not a single person in this room that would die for me. There's not one person here that would lay it, lay it on the line to save my ass. Knowing that you had guys like that on the left and right of you every day around you. I mean, that security that you have with that, even in the most unsecure place, you cannot come back to a world where everyone now is so selfish and so in it for themselves and they, and they think they're your friend and they, yeah but this is the thing you 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 understand now what true friendship is true friendship true brotherhood the fire department does have some of that but it's still not to that level of course what i ended up doing what i used to cope i guess is i got into mixed martial arts my thing that i was struggling with a lot was I deployed when I was 20. I turned 21 there and I turned 22 like a month after I got out. I turned 19 in basic training. I turned 20 at Oktoberfest in Germany. I turned 21 in Baghdad. And then I turned 22 two weeks after I got out. I had all these kind of milestone birthdays. And I remember when the first one came around, like when I turned 20, 24, 23. I remember saying to myself, you have these self-reflection moments. You're looking at yourself in the mirror and just saying, could you ever have courage like that again? I used to doubt myself that I could ever do something like that again. So like it became maddening to a point where I have to put myself in danger right now. I have to do something now that gets my adrenaline pumping, you know, and it's like even like the, the fire department I was at, you know, there was some calls that were crazy, but it's not the same. I don't want to explain it, but it's like, that impending doom, that threat of, you know, threat of harm. I needed to have that again. So like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to try this cage fight and shit. So I had been a lifelong martial artist since I was like third grade. I had some training, but it wasn't the same. So I was like, I knew I got to do this right. Found a gym, trained for a year, every day, five days a week. I was training while going through paramedic school, all this shit, you know, I'm working. I'm just trying to keep my life completely filled with shit to do and not sit around and be one of these poor bastards that ends up sitting on a bar stool for the rest of his life. I didn't want to go down that route, but I knew I had to be doing something. Otherwise I was going to be self-destructive. So when I had my first fight and I remember coming out, making the walk and just telling myself, go forward, go forward, trying to hype myself up, realizing as I got you know further into my fight career, I guess, I, I realized I didn't need to be all pissed off to to crack somebody, but it, at that time, it was like the same kind of feeling. You're getting that hyped up, heightened sense of awareness. The blood's pumping. You're, you're, you get the tunnel vision of your focus. This is the kind of shit that happens when that door clanked behind me for the first time. I knew this was, I was like, this is it. This is what I needed. I needed to feel fear. I needed to feel a threat. And then I had this guy in front of me that I could basically go at and release everything I'd been feeling 
with no consequences. I've always recommended it for veterans to get into some kind of competitive martial arts, jujitsu, MMA, if you want to do it all, or if you just want to focus on jujitsu or something. I mean, this kind of stuff. Because these are guys are actually, when you're training with these guys, especially in a fight gym, more so in a fight gym than just a jujitsu gym. But I mean, these are guys you're bleeding with again. You're training, you're all trying to be tough guys. You're all trying to be the best, but you know you need each other to get to the next level. You need your training partners. So you form a bond there that you know that if I saw one of these guys getting jumped by 10 guys, I'm wading into the fray. We're probably going to lose, but I'm not going to let him go down by himself. That guy's helped me with my last six fights, sparring with me, training with me. You know, These are real brothers. Kind of like you know, what they talk about with the gladiators back in Rome, the brotherhood that they had. What we've done, especially guys that deployed, that were in action, that actually saw combat and are dealing with friends they lost and wounds they might have gotten themselves, is to always remember that you need to use these experiences in life to motivate other people, to lead other people, to be an example for other people of how you can have trauma and hard experiences and you can use it as motivation to roll you into the better things in life. So many guys I realized over the years of talking to guys and hearing what they're doing and how they're screwing things up and all this kind of stuff, I realized a lot of these guys would have been losers without the freaking war. Now they have an excuse I always say, if you come back from something like that, it's your obligation to lead as best a life as you could possibly achieve because that's the only true way you you honor our fallen brothers is to live a life they would have been proud to live, to not squander a second chance at life by being the asshole on the bar stool or being the guy that burns every freaking bridge he has with everybody that cared about him. And then whines about, oh, the war did it to me. I tell these guys, go look in the mirror, dude, and tell yourself what you are. You're a fucking badass. You're not some chump that needs to be holding his head down and walking around these civilians that have never seen a thing in the world as if they're better than you. Because some of these guys have that experience, have that, have that outlook on life that they basically peaked at 22 and don't have anything else to offer this world. And I'm telling them, your experiences are what you need to offer to the generations that are coming after us. Men that have seen that sort of thing are the ones that should be guiding the youth of tomorrow. Like I said, you have to honor the ones that fell by being the best version of yourself. We will defend our freedom. We will bring freedom to others. And we will prevail. May God bless our country and all who defend us.